KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. We are seeing a very serious situation in Sudan where violence has erupted between two factions of the military. Hundreds of civilians have already been killed, and there is significant concern about this leading to a full-blown humanitarian catastrophe. We wanted to learn more about this conflict, including the backstory of how we got here. The violence that broke out, it seemed to people who don't follow Sudan's news to be very sudden when it broke out on April 15th. But in fact, this coincided with a time period when there was supposed to be a shift back towards civilian rule. That is Dr. Kelly Duke Bryant. She is an associate professor of history at Rowan University in Glassboro, New Jersey. She has done extensive research, writing, and teaching on Africa. I'm Matt Leon, and in this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth, we talk with Dr. Duke Bryant about the violence in Sudan, learn why this isn't a civil war, and also discuss why this conflict seems to be getting significant news coverage compared to other conflicts we have seen recently in Africa. So before we talk about the conflict, Sudan, unfortunately, I think is one of those places we only hear about when it's in crisis. Can you give us a quick primer on the country as far as how it fits kind of into a geopolitical puzzle, what its role is in Africa, stuff like that? Sudan is a country that is is actually very strategically located it sort of straddles the Sahara Desert and the Sahel um, region. So the Sahel is the, um, if you think about east to west climactic zones um, in Africa, the Sahel is the region that's just to the south of the Sahara Desert, which is largely pretty dry savanna um, land. So the, the, the land in Sudan is quite dry, arid land, but significantly the Nile River runs through Sudan. And in, in fact, about 60% of the Nile Basin is in that country. So it's very important in terms of access to water for the entire um, region because of the, the presence of the Nile. Um, Sudan also borders a number of other countries in the region, most of which have pretty fragile political systems. And it has a part of the country is actually coastline along the Red Sea. The Red Sea is very important, as listeners may know, for global trade with something like, I think it's 10% of all global trade moving through the Red Sea region. And so strategically, it's really important um, because of its economic role and its its position related to other African countries, including Egypt, which is just to the north, Eritrea, Chad to the west and South Sudan, which broke away after a long civil war and a referendum in 2011 to become its own country and has really rich oil resources there, most of which flow through Sudan, uh, where the conflict is currently. So very important in terms of geopolitics and the global economy. The conflict itself, at first, when you just kind of hear the headlines and you hear the vague news reports, I just thought this was a civil war, but I've not heard that term utilized to address it and kind of digging into it. It really seems like it's two generals that are going at it. And it's almost amazing to me that it's like that 
personal that has led to this type of crisis? Am I am I wrong? You're. I I don't know that it would go so far as to call it a personal conflict, but definitely it is a conflict between two generals. Interestingly, um, one of the New York Times reports that I heard about this referred to it as a civil war between two branches of the military, which also is not quite right, but I'll, I'll explain. But it seems better than calling it a civil war and just using the term civil war. I also read some things by some Sudanese kind of academic and academics and activists who say they don't want the term civil war use at all, because this is not a conflict that the uh, Sudanese people are really uh, behind, right? They're not typically supporting one side or the other. This is a conflict between two generals and their like immediate circles of supporters and then the, the significant military fighting forces that they control. Um, So to explain a little bit of, of what's happening here, you kind of have to go back a, a few years to really understand where this, this is coming from. But the violence that broke out, you know, kind of it seemed to, to people who don't follow Sudan's news to be very sudden when it broke out in April, um, on April 15th. But in fact, this coincided with a time period when there was supposed to be a shift back towards civilian rule that had been planned several months earlier uh, through a framework agreement in December of 2022, um, which so this was supposed to take effect in April. So the timing of it actually coincided with an effort to um, move back towards uh, a democratic transition process in, in Sudan. But as I said, to really understand the origins of this, we do need to look back to 2019, at least, you know, I'm a historian, so I like to look back longer into the past than that, but we'll start for now with with 2019. And what happened in 2019 was a kind of rising popular protest against the autocratic leader of Sudan, who had been in power at that point for nearly 30 years. He came into power in 1989. Um, This is Omar al-Bashir, President Omar al-Bashir, who, uh, if listeners have read or heard stories of the um, genocide in Darfur a number of years ago, a conflict that started in 2003. You would have heard about Omar al-Bashir's role in that. Um, he was ultimately charged with crimes against humanity by the International Criminal Court um, for the atrocities committed in that in that conflict, which really just came to a close in, in 2020. So it's a very recent ending to that. Um, but Omar al-Bashir was very unpopular for many, many reasons, um, the Darfur conflict, a wide variety of atrocities, and also just a lack of um, transparency in the government. He'd been in power for decades, as I mentioned, um, and the economic situation in the country was deteriorating. And so there's a a rising movement calling for democracy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And in that context, in 2019, the two generals who are now fighting with each other, both of whom actually were part of al-Bashir's administration. One of them was the military, the head of the army, right, under al-Bashir, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. And then the other was um, General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, who is often called by his nickname Hamedti. He was the head of a kind of paramilitary force that had been very important in a counterinsurgency tactics in Darfur and had been, you know, this, it was this, for, it grew out of this force called the Janjaweed at that time, which was known for coming in and just wiping out civil populations with really horrific scorched earth tactics. That paramilitary group was sort of reworked into a group called the Rapid Support Forces. 
and um, was under the control of General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo. These two figures, Burhan and Dagalo in 2019, in, in the context of this democratic protest movement, launched a coup against Omar al-Bashir and removed him from power. After a period of, of military rule, they established a new transitional government called the Sovereign Council. And this organization had a civilian leader, um, a civilian prime minister. His name was Abdallah Hamduk al-Kanani, and it had six civilian members and five military members that were supposed to be a kind of collective head of state. This included General Burhan, and it also included um, Dagalo, General Dagalo. They were working to move towards a transition to uh, elected democratic government. There were plans for elections in late 2022, but then General Burhan decided to derail the process and to try to take control himself. Um, so there's another military coup in October of 2021 which led to the replacement of all the civilians on this sovereign council with military folks or civilians who were chosen and appointed by the military. And then there were efforts to figure out how to move forward from there. And so what ultimately happens early this year was that, as I mentioned already, there was supposed to be a shift towards a new transitional government in mid-April. And there was also, there were talks ongoing in the context of that process of what would happen to this rapid support forces paramilitary group, right, which was needed to be integrated into the regular military. And the debate between Burhan and Dagala was who would ultimately have the most power in that process, right? And so that's kind of where this conflict between the regular military, which there's over 200,000 members of that, versus the rapid support forces, which has 70,000 or so in that fighting force with these two rival generals, both of whom have been involved in Sudanese that kind of government and stru military structures under and then following Omar al-Bashir. So it, it's it's a very kind of complicated narrative. Hopefully that made sense. No, it, it does. And who has the ability to bring these two sides together? I was reading this morning before we talked, I think the UN announced that there was the possibility or the hope for talks in maybe Saudi Arabia. I've heard a lot about ceasefires the last couple of weeks, and it seems like the ceasefires in name only, it doesn't seem to affect that much. Is there somebody that they will listen to that could step in here and try to help sort it out without bloodshed? You know, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's an open question, honestly. The groups that have been involved in negotiation and kind of trying to facilitate negotiations previous to this have included the African Union, which is the intergovernmental body for African countries um, that functions a little bit like the, the European Union, which may be more familiar to some people, as well as the United Nations. Um, the United States has been involved in various capacities in trying to push for an end to, an end to fighting and, and for a democratic transition. Um, and then there is also an East African-based kind of economic bloc called the Intergovernmental Authority on Development that's been involved as well um, to try to push for democracy in Sudan. Um, they've been negotiating with the various parties there since um, at least May of 2022, and were really instrumental in this agreement that was signed in December 
to move towards civilian rule. So, I mean, I, I think that one or more of these of these entities would be the most logical picks for kind of continuing to try to, to facilitate negotiations between the two generals. But it is also, you know, many have said it's really hard to see a peaceful way forward. I mean, I think today's announcement is perhaps the most promising event that's happened since the conflict broke out a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's encouraging to some, but it's certainly not enough. And there's not even a guarantee that it's going that these negotiations um, in Saudi Arabia or wherever they may end up being that they'll even go forward. It's an announcement. It's a hopeful sign, but certainly not a done a done deal that they'll, they'll even talk to each other. And to that point, if these two generals are willing to already do what they've done for power, it's hard to see as a layman a path forward where one of them is finally going to say, "Ah, you know what? You're right. You be the number one, and I'll be fine with that. Is the end game here likely going to be something that does not involve the two of them? And when I say end game, I mean like getting past this because I, it's just hard to see once you've kind of broken the seal on violence like this that there's going to be a point where you're going to accept not getting what you want. Yeah, I think that's a good a good point. As you suggest in your question, these two generals have already kind of cross a cross a certain threshold. They've crossed the line into violence and it's difficult to see how they retreat from that. Um, which is why I think some experts are predicting that this is going to be a very long conflict, that it's not going to be something that can be resolved in a matter of of weeks. As for for my own perspective on this, I actually think that I I, I don't know that as as a historian who who looks back on what has happened, that I'm really in the best position to give you a sense of what I think will happen. Um, But what I would just say to that is I think the most important thing is that the Sudanese people need to be heard. Their voices need to be heard and their concerns and plans for the future of their own country needs to be what whoever is involved in helping to negotiate this is what they're listening to. Right. And I think there are still really, really significant calls for democracy and democratic transition and reform coming from within Sudan. Um, democracy activists, even though there's this horrific fighting and violence and many people are fleeing, they're still committed to bringing about democratic um, transition in their country. And they want the international community, from what I've read anyway, um, to respect and support this movement and to let them kind of set the set the tone for what's happening next. And they're just, you know, reminding the international community that their role, their their main role at this point should be to bring the, the fighting to an end and then to pave the way for the Sudanese people to create their government and create their country in the way that they want it to, to, to be. We need to take a break. We will have more with Rowan University's Dr. Kelly Duke Bryant right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation about the crisis in Sudan with Dr. Kelly Duke Bryant of Rowan University. What is your level of concern as a historian who has studied conflicts like this and just what we've seen? You were very apt to point out when we started it's not a civil war, but the longer this drags on, I think it's just going to drag more people into it more people are going to have their lives destroyed and then are going to want to take up a side is there concern that this could deteriorate into a civil war i think the biggest concerns right now are um you know aside from the actual 
conflict between the two generals themselves, but it is the humanitarian fallout of all of this, right? And so I think what your question is pointing to is what is the impact going to be on the civilian population and how will they respond? And so I think it's worth talking a little bit about that, which is, you know, it, it, it is... I think very significant that this is a conflict that broke out in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, which is a major city. It's a city with a very sort of sizable, dense population. The rest of the country is relatively because of the arid landscape and the just the, the challenges of of, of economic uh, activity in that kind of a landscape. It's fairly sparsely populated, but the city um, has a very significant concentration of population with over five million. Um, residents, right? And so this is where the fighting has been concentrated and spilled over into other parts of the country, but it is having a really severe impact on the residents of Khartoum, um, many of whom have fled or are continuing to flee now um, to try to avoid fighting, many of whom have said that if they're in the city still, they can't access food and water. And so these are really immediate concerns. And I think that humanitarian aid needs to get to these people to allow them not only to survive but hopefully to hopefully to to, to not feel the need to take one side or another in the conflict if if that i think that kind of brings us back to the initial question so i think it's hard to say i think part of this will depend part of the answer to your question about whether this becomes a more broad scale civil war does depend on the humanitarian response and this significance uh, or, or and the the difficulty right of of living through this conflict and then if one side or the other is able to come forward with resources that they can distribute we know from experiences in other countries that that is sometimes a way of getting a civilian population that wasn't necessarily invested in the conflict kind of on board as a supporter of one side or the other. You see that sort of thing in Afghanistan and other places. Um, so I don't know that that's what will happen here, but I, I think it probably is on the minds of of those involved in trying to bring the conflict to an end and to supply humanitarian aid in the immediate future. It's interesting to me, you and I spoke some time ago about crisis in Ethiopia with kind of the underlying idea of our discussion being there wasn't much talk about it on the the global stage. Like it was not something you heard in your average newscast. It was something you had to work to find updates about. This is different. Like this is, I feel like we are getting pretty consistent news and updates without having to work very hard for it. Is it because of the importance of Sudan and how if this thing spills over or really escalates to an un unfortunate level? It is not going to be something that people are going to be able to turn the other way from. Is that why so many people seem to be paying attention to this? Yeah, I think there's a number. I think there's a number of reasons for this. I think that Sudan has been on the radar of United States actors for a very long time. Part of this, I think, goes back to these earlier civil wars before South Sudan broke away in 2011, where we have a civil war. So Sudan became independent from colonial rule in 1956. Um, it was rule. It was effectively a colony of Britain, though it was kind of ruled through this. It was called the condominium, the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan condominium. So it was this, Egypt had sort of invaded and set up a presence in Sudan. Britain controlled sort of controlled uh, Egypt and therefore controlled Sudan partly through Egyptian presence, if that makes sense. And so it wasn't until 1956 that Sudan became independent from the Anglo-Egyptian rule. And the first civil war there actually predated that. 
right? It began in 1955 and it went all the way through up through 1972. And then Sudan, the civil war reemerged in 1983 and lasted until 2005. So essentially almost the entire, and then, you know, the, the, the conflict in Darfur started in 2003. So almost the entire period of time that Sudan has been independent from colonial rule, there has been some kind of war or civil civil conflict, atrocities, war, whatever, whatever it may be at any given moment, but some kind of violence involving massive, really massive problems and often violence against civilians since independence. Um, and so there, Sudan has been on the radar of the United States for that, in part, I think, because in these earlier civil wars, there was this a kind of religious dimension to it where the northern part, which is now Sudan, where the conflict is currently, and the southern region of the country, which now is an independent country, the northern part was predominantly Muslim, the southern part predominantly Christian. And so a lot of American kind of Christian organizations, evangelical groups, missionary organizations had, they had an interest in southern Sudan in part because they saw it as a kind of strategic partner. They maybe had missionaries active in the region, and they wanted to support this Christian side in a civil conflict against a Muslim north. So there's an interest kind of inherent in, in broad swaths of the American population in these conflicts. Also, for a very long time, the United States has been a major donor um, and currently is the biggest provider of international of humanitarian aid and, and development aid to Sudan today. So there's there's that reason, I think, as well. And then, you know, there's a lot of attention given to the conflict in Darfur. The United States in 2004, I think probably at least partly because of the criticism that the United States received for not getting involved in the Rwanda genocide less than 10 years prior, in 2004, the United States declared what was happening in Darfur a genocide, and they were, were involved in trying to help end that conflict, right? So there has been this long history of engagement with Sudan in a way that certainly there was also engagement in Ethiopia, but it's, it seems like I think it's been more public and as a result, more kind of covered in the media. Also, Sudan was on the list of state sponsors of terrorism for a long time following the uh, rise to power of Omar al-Bashir through a military coup in 1989 that has had Islamist backing. And then just a few years later, al-Bashir actually reached out to international terrorist organizations and had these sorts of um, not exactly partnerships with them, but he, he was interested in, he was interested in working with international terrorist organizations, which is the reason that Sudan ended up on the um, on the list of state sponsors of terrorism and wasn't removed from that until very recently. I think it was 2020. Um, so again, Sudan has been on the radar of the United States for, for, for that reason in terms of our concerns about um, the war on terror under the Bush administration and then the lingering after effects of that. Um, and then I think finally, back to the to your question, and actually this isn't finally, but it is significant, the, the, economic, uh, the economic significance of Sudan, its position in the region surrounded by fragile states, that uh, there's a concern that if this conflict is uh, allowed to continue, that it could affect fragile regimes in other 
countries and there could be wider conflicts there in the region. And uh, that could be uh, really detrimental to the economic interests in that region. Um, and then this is, I think, my, my final point, which is that there is also a larger strategic significance in terms of United States interests and the role of both Russia and China in Sudan. We have seen that um, the Wagner Group, the Russian mercenary group, which is active in a number of different African countries, has been active in Sudan as well. And Russian interests in Sudan include gold mining. Uh, Sudan produces gold. There are a number of mines, some of which are actually controlled by and run by Russians. And apparently the Wagner mercenary group is involved in this kind of gold industry, which I've read is actually being used to help fund the war in Ukraine, right? And then on the other hand, China has long been increasing its interest and its presence in many African countries. And Sudan is one of them because it has significant natural resources and access to oil and the oil that flows through Sudan, um, some of it has been going to China and has been very important in, in um, China's international trade. And so I think the United States is interested in maintaining a presence and continuing to push for democracy in Sudan, in part because of concerns about if the U.S. isn't there, then China or Russia or both will be able to kind of fill that vacuum, the international community and um, have an additional ally in the region where the United States, you know, wants our country to be that strategic partner for Sudan going forward. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.